Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the... British-English band and also The Trees because I recently spoke to the vocalist, lyricist and photographer it is the one and only Simon Jones to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff so this is the interview so hopefully you'll find some interesting information and all that other stuff Um, yeah, so after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that uh, subject of the early formative years after I told Simon that my first uh, single had been David Bowie's Space Oddity that had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. This was Simon's response. Simon, it's over to you. Funny, because that was one of the first singles I bought as well, was um, Space Oddity, but the B-side was Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud. Right. Maybe I got it before you on the first time it was released. Yes, I think you did. But then I'm older than you. So <laughs> So I got it in the 74-75 reissue, and you probably got the original didn't you? I would have got it in seven, 1970 or 69 even. It was one yes. of the very first singles I bought. It was with my, I went 50-50 with my sister and I guess they were about 50p then singles. Yeah, I think mine was like 70p and um, I remember having <laughs> to save, save up for it. I saw it on top of the pop so I was kind of mesmerised and thankfully, you know, more mesmerised than Gary Glitter though, that was mesmerising and um, I bought it. My first album was kind of Changes One so I was kind of lucky with that one. So there you go. But then, yeah, so did you have a a musical awakening in life that sort of changed everything? Uh, Probably the Beatles. Um, I've got a big brother who's 12 years older than me so he was buying the Beatles albums as they were coming out. And I think... It would have been the Beatles and probably the song uh, A Day in the Life, which was still a favourite of mine. This was just um, uh, a big moment for me hearing that. Yes. And also having an older brother does does have a massive impact because... my brother was, I had, you know, in the 70s, you know, my brother, who I slightly worshipped, was seven years older. And he he had sort of consumed the world of prog rock. So it was, you know, the classic prog people of Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And he loved, you know, because he was a bit nerdy. He'd even have the plastic kind of covers for the albums. And he said, you mustn't play my records. So obviously when he was out, I would go and sneak into his room and play them and be like mesmerised with all these incredible, <laughs> incredible sounds and bands which was a completely different world than what was in the charts so but then I'd have to you know I learned to sort of put them all back very carefully in alphabetical order so he didn't you know he didn't ever sort of find out that I'd played those records I even sort of learned how to get the vinyl without putting finger marks on it because he would have checked so yeah prog rock was quite big and an older brother was always an, an important moment but 12 years that's it that's quite something isn't it what about and I, have a sister, I have a sister that's four years older as well so she was listening to deep purple and uh free and mop the hoople and uh led zeppelin and these bands which was a big deal for me as well yes well i i think the first time i heard deep purple's I think it was Fireball or Burn, and I was just like, you know, that drumming and that kind of noise, that whoosh sound that happens, and it was like, okay, that's another exciting, yeah, because it was Deep Purple and Black Sabbath were two other albums that um, I used to sort of listen to with great excitement. Were your parents at all musical, or did they have any kind of influence on your kind of musical 
No, they were, they were born, they were, uh, no, they grew when they were my, well, when they were in their 20s, they, they were fighting in the Second World War. So um, this was before youth culture, in fact. Yes. As far as I can see, there was no youth culture. I think it was, yeah, it would have been my, my big brother was just sort of caught the beginning of the, uh, of that big movement of youth culture just sort of after the rock and roll thing but my parents were before that so that they weren't really involved with music no no I think with my parents because they were very working class and um at that time I suppose most people were they it was very little money so when they got married they sold all their possessions virtually you know so they didn't ever borrow money and then a record player appeared in the in the 70s in our house and it was like um like i said the, the other two albums that i really loved was sergeant pepper because he bought that and also goodbye yellow brick road which i used to sort of find kind of also mesmerizing so the b-side of um sergeant pepper was just amazing you know good morning you know as well as um yeah, yeah, me too. The, it was a great album for me too it was it was good and there was no cultural context you know it was like 73 74 so it was just like you know that's just fantastic what is this sound but um obviously seeing david bowie was something else so when you got to 16 did you stay on at school or did you leave at this stage i went to art college and then got thrown out of art college in, in worcester yeah right so then as the 70s progressed, did did you sort of pick up on the 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 sort of the punk movement at this stage? I did a little bit later than my 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 uh close friend who we were big we 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 loved the Who and we almost supported the Who like a football team. And, and when punk came along, um and he was my teenage mate was saying I'm going to go and see The Clash and The Sex Pistols and The Damned when they were coming to Birmingham. I thought it was a great betrayal from him because he was like leaving The Clash and those bands behind and saying that he'd he'd finished with that lot. So I I held out, but then um, then in 77, I went and bought The Clash album in Stratford, actually, Stratford-upon-Avon. Right. And bought The Clash album, and I didn't really know why I was buying it. I just thought... I'm going to buy the Clash album and walking out of the shop holding the Clash album in 77, it felt rebellious and kind of incredible. And I thought, am I going to like this album even? And I took it <laughs> home. Yeah, I did like it. And, and then suddenly I felt, okay, does that mean I'm a punk rocker? Why not? And this was a massive moment for me. It was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to, I must be a punk because I like the Clash and I probably like all the other as well. Yes, I know. It was very tribal, wasn't it, at that stage? So was Birmingham your nearest place that um you you um yeah your your sort of like Norwich was ours or Ipswich, but wasn't was Birmingham your sort of go-to place for live gigs and clubs? It wasn't strange well it could have been. Later on it was, but we were really, really lucky because we were quite close to uh Malvern which was, I guess, three quarters of an hour drive away, because we were right out in the middle of the countryside. But Malvern was three quarters of an hour away, the other side of Worcester from us. And it had this venue called the Winter Gardens, and everybody played there. Um, So it was, well, not everybody, actually, but, I mean, a lot of bands played there. Uh, throughout the 60s as well, and into the 70s. So I saw the Jam there, who were incredible, and... um, 
I saw The Damned, I saw Joy Division there, I saw The Cure there and Susie and the Banshees there. And all these bands came to Malvern quite early on their tour, not really using it exactly as a warm-up gig, but um, uh, I think, yeah, it was on the circuit, which was yes. strange because Malvern is, is quite a small town. I know, because there, there's a place on the North Norfolk coast. Oh, yes, West Runton Pavilion. It was one of those places that all these bands just all appeared, even the Sex Pistols, and they just booked everybody for two decades almost. You know, it was just the most amazing list. So it probably sounds a little bit like the West Runton Pavilion, which is kind of near Cromo, and it's a tiny place, I think. Yeah. It might, you know, but probably a good when... catchment area. I mean, like Malvern had the catchment area of Worcester and Hereford, and um, all the countryside around. So the gigs were always really well attended. And, uh, and then we were really lucky for that because it was a nice venue too. I mean, and it was it was just an incredible time for us. Yes, I think if you're on that zeitgeist moment, it's quite interesting. So then, I mean, I've just always stuck with sort of being such a fanboy. I mean, how did you decide or when did you decide that you were going to take it that little step further and just be in a band? I think... This is a bit strange, but I don't talk about it very much because it sounds like I'm name-dropping, but um, <laughs> one of my close friends at school was John Taylor from Duran Duran. And um, before he joined Duran Duran, he, he formed a punk band. He was one of, the, one of my mates who was into punk when I was still at school. And he did this gig at, um, with, with three of his mates at uh, a rugby club at the end of school. And they were dreadful. They just thrashed their instruments and jumped up and down and spat at each other. <laughs> and I think, looking back, that was quite a big moment for me because I thought, well, that's kind of exciting. And I was well into it, but it, they were dreadful. So I thought, well, if they can do it, kind of, so could we. And then... Uh, the really big deal was my younger brother buying a, an acoustic guitar. Um, and he was 14 or 15 at the time. This is Justin, right. still the guitarist of One Also of the Truths. He bought an acoustic guitar, and I could he hear him learning the acoustic guitar in his bedroom next door. And this was a big moment. And this was. I started thinking, yeah, he can, he can be the guitarist. I could be the singer. We are two very close friends of the Havis boys who were living up in the village next to ours. And we thought, they're really into music as well. So um, why not go out and, uh, you know, one of us can play bass, one of us can play drums. I'm the oldest, so I can be the singer. Uh, Justin's got a guitar. And it, it basically started like that. And yes. Believing that because punk was ha happening at that time, we just really missed punk, actually. We, we were too young. Um, but we started out as a punk band, just thrashing and trying to learn chords and shouting things. And then punk kind of it became clear that punk had passed its, the, its impetus, the really exciting moment. Yes. Then, this, then you get this period, which is now called post-punk. 
and all all everything happens. But just pause in that little moment about the the Durand Ram because there was a compilation that came out last year which was called Unseen Post Punk Birmingham 1978 to 1982. So I did an interview with the guy who compiled it, and there is this ba- a band called Dada on it, which features John Taylor's pre. Duran Duran, you know, um, band with David Twist. Was was that the band that you'd seen or was it the other one that... It wasn't. There was one. This was when he was still at school. So mm-hmm. he would have just been with his mates, really. I think they were called The Assassins. Um, and it was really just thrashing their instruments and shouting. Yes. As far as I could hear. <laughs> it was very inspiring because it meant, because of course, before that, as you know, I mean, we were into bands like Camel and Tangerine Dream and these brilliant musicians. And, and we, I just thought it was another world. I was massively into it. But I thought, you know, this is, these people are fantastic musicians and they all sound incredibly intelligent. And it's not anything that I could ever do. And then, of course, punk came and smashed all that, knocked all that down. Yes, and, um, uh, and yeah, that was what he was doing then, and uh, and uh, I think they were called the Assassins, something like that. They could have been, yeah. It was just kind of a, an interesting compilation. Obviously, someone's really doing lots of archiving for that scene, but there were there was the people like Stephen Duffy in that world, wasn't there? And um, the prefects, Robert Lloyd, who went on to That's be right, part yeah. of the, the Nightingales, and I suppose Birmingham has because there was the film that came out recently wasn't there last year king rocker about um robert lloyd the nightingales and that journey of him sort of in the prefix and being part of that band and then forming his kind of record label vindaloo records with um that had big success with we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it so um okay. i suppose that's what that's where birmingham starts to become a bit more on the scene wasn't there and um yes swell maps we loved all those bands. So yeah, Spell maps. Yeah, we were very into the spell maps. Yeah, yeah, because it's kind of an interesting time. Because I don't know if you came across them, but on that post-punk period, but there's um, there was a band called Rima Rima that just recently had a film made about them, and they only sort of lasted for about one year and did one EP. But it's become this kind of really big thing. Rima Rima. It had Marco Peroni, who was guitarist, and various other people who were all that was the first uh, band to sign to 4AD records but it okay. was kind of it was just interesting in the sense that a lot of that music that was made 40 years ago has just started everyone started to re kind of go back and analyze it and and start to try and sort of critique it a bit more or, or appreciate it more so it's kind of a it's kind of interesting that i've just noticed having done this show for a few years that suddenly People are, you know, everyone's writing the book and everyone's making films about their kind of musical world, which is quite, um, it's brilliant for us fans, by the way. We're not knocking that at all. So when, when, so when you started the band, it was your, it was a five, was it five piece with your brother? Four, and four piece in, in a way. Did you have any kind of manifesto at this stage of what you were going to look like or sound like? No, not really. Um... When we were, and also the trees, when we, we, we formed it, and also the trees at the end of 1979, uh, but we could barely play them. Um, and no, we didn't really know what we wanted at all. Uh, we wanted to not sound like anybody else, and we didn't want to look like anybody else. We wanted to be different. Um, that was our main priority. But actually, you know, we weren't good enough musicians to do anything other than actually what we did, which was writing some pretty basic songs. 
Yes, absolutely. And at that stage, had you was this was this was the band the full time twenty four seven project for you, or were you doing? We were no. Justin was Justin and Nick were still at school. They were fourteen. Right. That's quite young, isn't it? Yeah, and I was nineteen, and the bassist was eighteen or seventeen. No, we were still at school and college, and uh, I was actually working as a photographer at the time. Right. That's really so. When you got your, you got a sort of a live. Your was it the live debut you done in nineteen eighty, and then you sort of had this connection with the Cure. Yeah. Which kind of led to a, a kind of a relationship of some description. Yes, we did a couple of gigs, local gigs, and did a few demos. And there was this uh, advertisement in the one of the music papers from Fiction Records saying that The Cure were looking for support bands on their next tour. They were going to have a different support band in every venue, local, and send your tapes in. So we sent ours in and uh, forgot about it. And then one night it was mentioned on John Peel that Fiction Records were searching for, and also The Trees, and um, they wanted us to support them in, in Loughborough, which isn't local at all, actually, but I mean, at least it's the Midlands. And so right. that was the start of that. That was in uh, 1981, I think. God, that must have been, that must have felt like a big kind of um, a blessing. Because at that stage, I don't know, you know, it seems like that period was very good. There was the gatekeepers, weren't there? We had the John Peel show, which was kind of like a fantastic beacon of, you know, he curated this, you know, show. Plus we had three weekly music papers, which also kind of helped, you know, making, getting people sort of a little bit elevated out of their kind of little neighbourhood. And every every town and city would have alternative indie nights as well. So again, you know, bands did sort of feel like they were starting to progress quite, not quite rapidly, but there was some sort of, ability to feel like you're not going to just play in front of your kind of friends and family and anybody else to black you know yeah, you sure. had to, to blackmail at that stage so then yeah. when yeah. when you started you know because because you get john peel giving you a play and also you get a john peel session as well quite soon yeah that's right and what's your um, what's your memory of working with the famous dale griffith not that good actually we felt completely uh underprepared and not professional enough because we weren't we were still very young and still naive and um they were a little bit bored really they're not bored but they seemed frustrated with us because we seemed because we didn't really we weren't sharp and knew what we were doing we were sort of a little bit lost um and yeah, we were nervous. You had to do four tracks in a day and they had to be good because it was a massively big deal. And uh, there's a lot of pressure and um, they were not particularly helpful and not really into what we were doing. So it was it wasn't a great experience at all. No, most bands don't have a great experience with that. Is that true? I, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. No, they. <laughs> everyone says the same. They're like, really? Say. OK. <laughs> Oh, I didn't realise that. It's quite good to know after all these years. Yeah, so it was just like this person who was really irritated. It's like, oh, I've got my job, but I don't really enjoy yeah. these these young kids who have no idea what they're doing, and I've got to try okay, and yeah, sort it Yeah, that's exactly how it was, yeah. So, what made it worse was our bassist broke a string before we even started, and uh, it's quite rare to break a bass string. And he hadn't got any spares, of course, because we'd never broken a string before or a bass string, and... 
and it was a Sunday and we had to try and find it and it was all quite stressing and and uh, yeah they were not very tolerant yeah I think the only people who ever have a nice experience had a nice experience with Dale was the a good drummer because he was a drummer in Mott Hoople, wasn't he? And I think they then had a bit of a conversation if they were quite good at drumming and he would sort of, you know, relate to them. But anything else was just like kind of an irritation that he had to just deal with and get through the day. <laughs> so it's cool. Great. Yes, so that was always good. Because your first album, which is the, which is also called And Also The Trees, this comes out, you record this 83, don't you? This is the first kind of recording. But before that, you do the, yeah. there's a there's an amazing little sort of EP single that you've done, isn't it? Which is The Secret Sea. What's your memories of um, recording that session? That was our second single, yeah. Uh, that was at Southern Studios, which was, the studio that Crass used and all the bands on the Crass label in uh, down in North London in um, Bounds Green or yeah I think it was Bounds Green um, I don't it's 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 of course it's a long time ago um, what do I remember about it I remember it because it was the probably one of the it was one of the very few times when we actually went out deliberately to write a single that we hoped would be radio-friendly and commercial. And um, we were still incredibly inexperienced and uh, we didn't have very much time to do it. So we, yeah, we worked hard, managed to get something that sounded pretty good. And we went to the um, Southern Studios and with Lol Tolhurst, the drummer of The Cure, and uh, and we worked with a guy called um, David Motion, who was um, a producer that went on to do quite a lot of much better known albums and singles. Um, and they did a really good job. We did a good job. And it came out on Reflex Records, who were a pretty small label. Uh, actually, they were called Future Records at the time. And um, it didn't really do much. Uh, we didn't get played much on the radio in the UK anyway. I'm just discovering that we actually were played quite a lot more in, in places like France and Germany. Right. And Switzerland. We didn't know about that at the time at all. But um, yes, I suppose we wanted it to be a commercial single and to have to get into the indie charts, but it didn't. But it didn't really, it didn't disappoint us too much because straight after we went into the studio to record the album. So we were quite busy then. Yes. And were you aware of other bands at that time that you were, I don't know, slight, I wouldn't say, you know, you're part of any scene, but, you know, there were bands, there was quite an interesting sound started to develop because I know it's a bit simplistic, but I suppose for me, um, you know, there was the mainstream, you know, with that Trevor Horn production. And then you had all these different worlds. There was a sort of goth world. There was a new Paisley world. There was a psychobilly. There was, you know, obviously a narco punks and anarchists as well and then there was this kind of independent scene and then there were bands like the sound weren't there and sad giants as well and and there was a sort of a, a slightly melancholic kind of quality and a, a depth which you know somehow was in a different you know you know different part of the kind of musical narrative I just wondered if you were listening to other kind of bands going oh yes that 
that's kind of more our our place. I just wondered how that was for you. It as was a... more not really the bands that you've mentioned so much. We were listening to uh, The Cure and Joy Division and The Banshees and The Gang of Four, Bauhaus, Joy, uh, New Order when they start when they started and. Uh, Mainly those bands and, and the Echo and the Bunnyman, of course, um, which we weren't. I think what we one of the things that was particular. I don't know about particular about us. Maybe other bands would like it too. But if ever we started to do to play a, a new song and it started to sound too much like Echo and the Bunnymen, we'd say, "Hang on a minute, this is sounding too much like Echo and the Bunnymen. Let's." We can't carry on with this. We've got to change it. Otherwise, it's going to sound like we're trying to sound like the Bunny Men or we're trying to sound like the Cure or Joy Division or whatever. So as soon as we touched on anything that sounded like anybody else, we'd back off. And um, so I can't say we were being influenced by them. And I don't even know if we felt as if we were part of a scene. But, I mean, I guess we were, looking back at it. It was, it was the post-punk scene, which was... Um, quite broad, actually, as you were saying, they were, you know, they were. The spectrum was was pretty broad. Yes, um, and 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 much more than I remember at the time. Actually, I've sort of been, I don't know, looking at different different publications. There's a, a guy who put a book together recently about all the different tribes of that indie, I suppose, alternative world, and and there was like subsections of subsections. I think, blimey, I didn't, I hadn't quite sort of burrowed down that much when I was there at the time. So, um, no, no and, and there was obviously, you know, soundtracks for each of these different little places. So, um, yes. So when you came to do the first album, which is, you know, the self-titled one, did you, you know, the band were obviously almost probably 16, 17, or the youngest members. I mean, was was it were you looking at it as a as a as a sort of something that you were gonna keep going, or was it kind of a short-term project? I say that because quite a few bands from that period were just thinking, we'll just do an album, possibly get played on John Peel, and that's definitely gonna be it. Or were you looking at it as something that you know you might make a career out of? Well, uh... We weren't, we weren't thinking that it was a long-term career uh, move. We were just going with the flow, and it was what we wanted to do. And it was around about that time that we, Graham and I, the, the other, um, actually, when the, no, when the band came out, it was, uh, sorry, when the album came out, it was 83. So I was already 24, and I'd already left my job. So... I was focused on being in a band for the short term and giving it everything that I could, um, giving it all my time. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to play live music. I wanted to record records. And um, if I didn't make any money, uh, I'd go on the doll. But the priority was, was, was being in a band and just living in the moment, really. I didn't think about, about, about the future or we didn't really know as a band where we were going. But it was exciting and we were doing what we wanted to do and we were able to. So uh, we just went with the flow. 
Yes. And were you also caught up with that kind of political time of the 80s? Because, you know, obviously, you know, Thatcher gets in 79, then we have the Falkland War, then we have the miners' strike, Greenham Common. Then, you know, by the mid 80s, there's this kind of the Red Wedge movement. I just wondered how you were, how that was influencing your sort of creative direction as well, or whether that was something I know Lawrence and Felt was definitely not influenced by anything apart from putting out one album a year for the for the duration of the 80s I just wondered what that was whether that was feeding back into your work not at all no we've always kept a distance from from uh, politics and our feelings on, on on the political situation other people are good at doing that and 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 uh and being inspired or influenced by that sort of thing but we weren't and um well, we left that to other people. Wasn't yes, what our music was about at all. Did you? Were you driven with a sort of romantic melancholia? Because they, you know, with the the first album, tracks like "So This Is Silence" and "Talk Without Words," there was a sort of a, a poetic quality to them, and with the sort of musical sort of accompaniment as well. Um, <laughs> not deliberately. That's just it. Just happened like that. But that's, there's a. It's true. There's a. There's a there's a thick vein of melancholy in a lot of music that I like and the rest of the members of the band like for sure um we seem to be drawn towards that whether it's in uh whether it's Joy Division or whether it's Dolly Parton or <laughs> or country and western music there's something about that uh that vein of melancholia that is that seems to attract us yeah Yes, well, in my, in my case, it was the early years. When I was young, it was listening to an album by The Carpenters. I think that sort of shaped everything for me, really. Musically, it was just stunning. So, yes, you can't beat those lyrics. When you came to do your second album, Virus Meadow, what was the atmosphere like then? Because obviously, you know, this is just beyond, well, this is the mid-80s, isn't it? And obviously, indie pop by then. I mean, I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87. That's the years of the Smiths, by the way. Um, it's a vague kind of concept or, or kind of theory I've got. But there was a kind of a bit of a golden period where, you know, we had so many incredible sounds, you know, like from the chills in New Zealand to the Triffids and the go-betweens and the June Brides and... You know, it was just a kind of glorious time. What do, I was just wondering what it was like when you were doing your follow-up album and trying to keep the momentum going. I don't know why we did it or why it happened, but we distanced ourselves from pretty well all of the contemporary music that was going on, which I'm sure means that we missed out on a lot of good stuff. But we felt like outsiders already at this point. And living where we lived in the middle of the countryside and dressing the way we dressed, which was different to any other band as, as well, and not having a great relationship with the, with the British press. Um, I think we just sort of deliberately stepped away from the music business and the music scene of the times. And I think creatively, we were looking into other styles of music. We were looking back into psychedelic bands and even jazz bands, classical music, film soundtracks. We were more focused on, on those areas than the other bands that were around us at the time, actually. Yes. There was another band called Shelly Ann Orphan who 
who stuck their stuck them stuck their neck out and got slaughtered by the press, which was not very nice. But um, <laughs> they were quite, they were quite different and and had that kind of. I think they even had an artist painting in the background as well when they were doing their live uh, shows. They got slaughtered for that, didn't they? So you can they imagine yeah, the press wouldn't have liked they, the British press wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible isn't it but then you know as as i mean i probably it doesn't probably you know from what you're saying it probably hasn't influenced you that much but i did notice that every kind of five years there's a sort of a new wave or new chapter that comes along i suppose there's a new wave of you know 16 18 year olds who want their next kind of their their artists and also there was this change in in sort of drugs let's face it ecstasy suddenly came along and and the music oh, yeah. scene changed again did that at all have any impact on the band as as we were going through the 80s and also you'd been together now for over five years and then sort of thinking right the third album what what are we going to make now Do, does anybody you know is anybody sort of interested I just wondered what that was you know how that was feeling for you Anybody interested? You mean the, the, the public or the record, the the, the record buying public? You mean yes, or, the record yeah. buying public. Um, just you know, just keeping it because I I suppose one of the things that a lot of bands kind of finish is that they just think even the people that liked us back five years ago haven't even don't even want to buy the record or come and see us live. And I think there was that you know people just get a bit fed up and disillusioned and then think actually I'm just going to get a job. So I just wondered how you were keeping that energy going. We were on the ascent at that point because um, the really big deal for us was when we uh, crossed the channel and played in um, mainland Europe for the first time and discovered that we actually had an audience there that we didn't know about. And we also discovered that you were paid for playing properly. Uh, you were fed decent food. You were given a hotel and you were looked after well, and we had crowds. And that was a bit different to what was going on for us in the UK. Yes. Was, I mean, some of the UK gigs were fine, but I mean, in general, it was it was a it was a big eye-opener for us to be able to go and uh, and be looked after that way and to to be respected that way as a band. And the audiences knew our stuff. And this was a huge boost to us. Um and particularly in France, things were going really well. And by the time we'd got to sort of releasing our third album, we were playing in pretty big venues to like a, a thousand people in some in some cities. Yes. Uh, so this was a great period for like like this is probably the the um, from a sort of audience uh, level and being played uh, an exposure level. This is probably our most successful period in the sort of late eighties when our when our third and fourth albums were coming out. We were playing to big crowds in in, um, in Germany and France, particularly in big festivals in Switzerland and Belgium. And we kind of gave up on the UK at this point. We'd had a few bad experiences of, of just not being paid, despite having good crowds, and um, and. We just thought, okay, our audience is not here. It's in France and Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Italy. Uh, it's just elsewhere. So we 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 neglected the UK. We just Why dropped it and thought, well, let's not bother. It's not worth the heartache. We'll go to where people want to hear us and where, where people want to see us. 
Yes. Well, no, it's interesting because actually, so what country, because because I've, I've come across this a few times where one particular country in Europe is like, why thought we were big in Spain or we were really big in Europe, uh, Italy? What country really took the ban to heart on for you or did you find that it was most of Europe? It was our, our uh, best audience, biggest audience was Paris. Um but as far as countries are concerned, it, it went from Germany to France, Germany to France. Uh, but we were always doing well in Switzerland and uh, Belgium and the smaller countries as well. Yes. So when and what was it like with your American tour? Because this was this going, was this with the Cure supporting the Cure? Was this kind no, of it wasn't. This was on our own. Right. And. No, um, there was a headline tour in 91. It was at the time of the first Gulf War. Exactly at the time of the, of the start of the first Gulf War. So this was pretty freaky because the Americans can get very patriotic. <laughs> and uh, we were there at that time. And it was a difficult time to go there because of getting visas and, and whatever. But it was, it was, it depended on the city. It depended on whether there was college radio, basically. If there was college radio, as there was in Boston and as there was in uh, Pittsburgh, and they were playing your stuff, we would get good crowds, three, four hundred people in venues of that capacity. But then we'd go to somewhere like Detroit, where there wasn't any college, college radio that were, that were playing us, and we'd have 20 people there. So it was a disaster. So, yes. But this was, we, we toured down the East Coast, and it was patchy. We had great crowds in Chicago and Washington and Pittsburgh and, uh, and, and terrible crowds in Hoboken and <laughs> in Detroit and uh, Ohio and these places. So, yeah, it was, it was a great experience, but it was quite patchy with the audiences. It's often it's quite interesting because a lot of bands that um, I've done interviews with often it's after doing America that it kind of breaks them and they split up. But did did America keep the band? Were you in a sort of positive state at this stage? You weren't sort of sort of falling quite apart. Positive, quite positive. I think we weren't looking to break America. Uh, we weren't. Uh, I think one of the things about and also the trees is, which is different to a lot of bands is we were never making music because we wanted to make it like that sort of doing the lottery thing or winning that winning the football pools you're making it because you're on top of the pops and we're, we're we're getting money we weren't doing it for that we weren't doing it to become rock stars to become rich we were really doing it for the music so of course, it's nice to have successes and to have great audiences and, and to get good, good reviews in the press and be on the TV. But that wasn't what it was all about for us. It was, it was about, the, about being in a band together, the four of us or the five of us, and making music that we loved. So the American tour was pretty good. It didn't lead to anything else, but we didn't really care about that it wasn't like oh shit we haven't made it in america it was a failure and the band starts to fall to pieces because we you know this was like the holy grail for us it, it was 
it was an okay tour. We had a really great time. It was a massive experience. There were some great gigs, but that was it. We weren't invited back because we weren't getting good enough crowds and there wasn't enough interest. And as you were saying, it was getting towards the end, well, it was the beginning of the 90s. And in the 90s, you had this, as you say, this, this period where you have the, uh, the house music and the, the, the acid house and, and the ecstasy scene and, and the um, Brit pop. And suddenly the 80s bands, quite suddenly the 80s bands all became very unfashionable and no one wanted us anymore. Yes, it, it, it did happen, didn't it? I know, that was very confusing. Do you work, I mean, with your producers, you've worked with quite a lot at this stage. You also worked with, was it Mark Saunders as well, who had an amazing run-up? He, he did one remix with Robert Smith of a, of a track from our fourth album, Farewell to the Shade, yeah. This was I didn't pair. actually meet him, that was Justin, my brother, that was there for that session. Yes, and then when when as as the nineties you got your, I don't know how did how did the band sort of fare because obviously you know sort of keeping everything together not just kind of with the music but sort of you know just your own life how did you sort of keep did did music sort of play the central part or did you have to get a kind of a side hustle to keep the band going throughout the nineties? We were I was all we as a band all of us all had to do other work. There were times when there was enough work. But they were and money coming from the music, but they were they were moments rather than long periods. So we were always doing something else. I was working on farms. Uh, I worked on a pig farm for quite a long time, like mornings to, to sort of bring some money in. I worked with a market gardener in the fields there. I even worked as an archaeologist for quite a long time, digging uh, sites in around the midlands uh, any work i could get really that i, I mean I've, I've always been quite into doing physical labor uh, even though the money is bad i've just it's just the kind of work that i like i suppose i can do that work and still be thinking about music and lyrics it's one of the things for me so yeah and the other members of the band were doing other bits as well we had to Yes, my God, that sounds quite. Doesn't <laughs> so. With your nineties, did you change your management at this stage as well? Uh, we've never really been managed. Actually, we've had record companies and people that were running record companies that were kind of helping with the management, but we've never really had. We've never really had a serious manager. Yes. Uh, we our, our record company in the 90s Reflex Records stopped and we went with our with our German record company who were called Normal Records or Normal Records. Um and then of course yeah the end of it was that was the big music industry crash when when all the when all the distribution companies started going to the wall and people stopped buying records but uh yeah, that was to come. Yes, because is it the case then at that at the moment, the band? You know, obviously, I was just looking at your bits and pieces. There, has there been a new film made about the band as well? Uh, there's yeah, there's some French guys who are making a film, and that's due to be coming out at the end of the at the end of this year. Yes. Yeah, so, how did that sort of project sort of start and and develop? Because that's quite a, an amazing, you know, like I mentioned a bit earlier, there was this band 
who you know put out one EP, the first band on Four AD, Rima Rima, and then suddenly you know there's this interest. So how did how did this project start? Because obviously you must have thought, hmm, this is interesting, but is it going to really happen? Uh, well. People have been wanting to write books about us for a while, and that's sort of also uh, one book has been published last year, which was an incredible sort of book this big and and uh, well, you know, a, a big book, quite thick, and it's it, it's um it's it's a sort of it's got posters and and reviews and photographs of all of our concerts between 1980 and. 2005 and there's another book being written at the moment and the film the film yeah it was a guy that he he makes he he's from Dijon and he makes um live films and footage of like sessions of bands when they're on tour and he filmed us and liked us a lot and filmed us again and then he decided to do a sort of a a short documentary of like 15 minutes following us around for a few gigs and then he had the idea of, of, of doing the, the documentary of the whole of the history of the band and our 14 albums and 40 years of and also the trees and 550 gigs or whatever it is we've done now and he's he he wanted to do that i must say justin and i were we had mixed feelings about it um, I suppose we like to be in control, and this was like not being in control. <laughs> it was somebody else making something about, and also the trees that we okay, we could get involved, but basically it's somebody else's film. So we were a little bit nervous about that. We were we're still a little bit unsure about you know who the hell is going to be interested, um, but of course we do have a fan base. But I mean. Uh, and also slightly concerned that it would be um, demystifying the band more than we would like it to. But then it should be okay. I think the bits that I've seen are, are all right, as long as they haven't got too much of us uh, talking nonsense on it. It should, it should be all right. <laughs> yes it's always quite interesting isn't it yes who controls the narrative it's quite a weird one but with the band I mean how have you coped with kind of lineup changes because obviously over the over the decades people have come and gone has that has that been something that's sometimes been a relief to sort of be able to work with different people and and have a different kind of energy about the next project yeah we haven't had many many lineup changes um We've only had two drummers uh, and four bass players, <laughs> uh, and, a few, and the fifth member we've had has changed a few times. But um, I'm always sad, personally. I'm always sad when someone has to leave the band because it's a special relationship. I feel very close to the people that I've been on stage with, really. Um, however, there is something exciting about a new person coming in with their new ideas 
and just twisting the way we evolve in an unexpected way. And this is positive. It means we're, we're not going in a straight line. We, we're moving with them. They make us move. And I find this more interesting. Yes, because cause it was your, is it the 10th album, Listen for the Rag and Bone Men? This has two new members and quite different instruments as well. So that, that adds quite a different vibe and a sonic quality to the band. Did you, did you sort yeah. of, did you pick them for sort of a particular, you know, idea or reason at this stage? No, um, we don't, we've never had a big pool of, of, contacts or friends in the in the in the music world to choose from we never advertised uh ian was the bass player there who who, who came in um he was actually a friend of our of our sound engineer who was in a band with him and uh, and recommended him and he was an exceptionally good electric bass guitarist Justin considered him to be overqualified for what we wanted. He was too clever. <laughs> too, he overplayed a little bit for us at first because that was his style. He was more of a prog-based uh, guitarist. So Justin persuaded him to spend more time playing his double bass, which he wasn't so good at playing <laughs> because it suited our music better. And um, and it worked really, really well. He um, Justin kind of guided him in, and uh, and this is a really successful period. We did the acoustic album with him afterwards, playing the, his um, his stand up double bass. Um, yeah. And after that, we did another album where he did play his electric bass. And by then, he would really got what "And Also the Trees" were about, and 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 did some really good work on that with, with just the ordinary electric bass guitar. Has your songwriting style or methods changed over the years i just wondered if you sort of had to sort of come up things slightly differently at times and use different methods to get sort of inspiration for the next project or the next song or the next album slightly but in as, as a rule all of our music starts with justin's guitar ideas um he writes kind of sketches on a on an electric guitar and then develops that. Maybe introduces the bass the bass guitarist and the drummer, and then they will give the piece of music to me, and then I will work on the vocal melody and the, and the lyrics. And so, and it's always been that way. So we've actually we've stuck to that way of working. Yes, and um, because because you were on sort of is it normal records, and then you start your own record label. Was that just a a, a way of just taking much more kind of ownership and direction of the band? It was partly enforced and partly us playing safe. Um, with, at the end of the century, I suppose, um, we nearly stopped because uh, personal lives and families, and we had to move away from Worcestershire. And um, we weren't sure if we could continue, but we did. And we wrote, uh, in, in the early 2000s, we wrote Further From The Truth. 
um, which went out on distribution through a distribution company called EFA, EFA, German, and this was the first release on our own label, I think. And then they went bust before they could pay us for selling all the records <laughs> they'd sold. Right. So this is kind of a disaster. Um, and after that, we've been very careful to about who, how we work, and not to. It wasn't our fault, of course. It was. It was. There were a lot of bands on going through this distribution company, and they just went bankrupt because of the. What was it? It was just record sales were went suddenly went very very badly. Yes, I guess that might have been the world of streaming started coming. Or, or... It, is it just before then? But I do remember seeing this documentary about Beats um, Beats music, and there was that guy Jimmy Iovine, who was you know everything was just wonderful. This was the late nineties, and then suddenly Napster appeared, and he I think he just had that moment where you sort of like in a dramatic Hollywood film would just sort of drop your glass and go, oh my god it's all over in that one second you know he kind of got there was going to be a massive problem with Napster and illegal downloading which yes it could have been that time that, that I, know, been, yeah. I know a lot of record labels indie labels had a problem in the late 80s when rough trade went bust and and their distribution and people lost all their you know stock and yeah yeah it was it, it, it wasn't a good moment but you've also you've collaborated with other people though haven't you outside um, the band because you you did a project with a member of the Young Gods, didn't you? I still yeah, I'm still in a group with him. Yes, we we we're playing live. We played live live last year. We released two albums. Yeah. How did that relationship? It's called November. And how did that relationship start? And um... well, funnily enough, I moved to Geneva in 2000, and I didn't know anybody here at all, and I went to my local record shop. And the guy that ran the record shop remembered me from the mid-80s because he had actually promoted a gig in Geneva for Of An Oss The Trees. So he recognised me and said, hey, I recognise you, you're from An Oss The Trees. I said, yeah, okay, hello, yeah, blah, blah, I've come to live here. And then, strangely enough, a few months later, Bernard Trontin, the drummer of um, The Young Gods, was in the record shop, and he was talking to Alain, the, uh, the 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 guy who runs it, and he was telling him that he that he'd got a lot of music that he'd written himself, either for film soundtracks or for the Young Gods, or just because he liked writing music, uh, keyboard music, and he didn't quite know what to do with it. And his he he recently had an idea that he was going to release an album with a guest singer on every track. So for each track, he'd use a different singer. And Alain said, oh yeah, who are you thinking of using? And he said, well, it's probably gonna ask Jazz Coleman, because they're friends with Killing Joke. And maybe friends would sing one, and, and he mentioned another guy, and he said, and I'd like to get the guy from, uh, and also the trees to, to go on one of the tracks because I'm a massive fan of theirs. And Alan said, well, you know, he lives here, don't you? And Bernard was like, 
he didn't know so he was very surprised <laughs> and uh and then alan said okay well I'll, next time i see him i'll give him your number and so then this happened and we met and bernard gave me a load of pieces of music and said you know if you'd like to sing on one of them then um choose which one you'd like to, to work on and i said well, okay and i took away the uh the mini disc i think it was or the i can't remember what it was uh, the format was and uh I actually had ideas for about six pieces and went back and played them to him and he liked all of them and then so we decided <coughs> to do an album together instead of different vocalists just me and that was and that's 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 how the first album started oh my god that's amazing so that this is the album self-titled a day a day of spring going through to the night watchman with all your all your work with you yeah. know, your collaboration my God, was that quite a nice experience to have something that was so different and so, you know, not working with your brother or, or the band? Yeah. It was the first time I'd ever worked with anybody else, really. You know, even after being in a band for 30 years, I'd never done anything with anyone else. And um, that was the first time. And it there was no guarantee that it, that it was going to work, but it, it did. It, his music the chemistry is right and um it uh yeah it was a really good experience god that must be he's a nice guy as well it's, and, and of course i was i was living in a country and not really knowing anybody so it was good from a, a social point of view as well i would imagine that was quite a relief you could have think <laughs> i know yeah. i know at least another person here so how did you manage to navigate the the kind of last few years with lockdown how did that sort of sort of i don't know Deal with, how did you deal with it creatively and sort of, you know, na you know, to get through that? And because um, you've got a new album out, haven't you? Yeah, we released an album last October. Yeah, uh, I think it's our fourteenth album. Yeah, it's the um, the Bone Carver. Um, it could have come out. It would have come out earlier had it not been for COVID. But actually, creatively, we we pretty well finished it. Um, by the, by, by uh, 2020, what held it all up was we couldn't get together to mix it, and we couldn't get together to record it, and then mix it. And so this this held us back by about a year. Creatively, yeah, it was weird because I didn't do any gigs and I didn't see my brother for long periods of time. Um, but actually, it was pretty good for me because. I went to my room where I work on music very often. There were no other distractions. There was nothing else to do. So every day, I think my best record was I went 63 consecutive days <laughs> to my room where I work on music every day without missing a day for 63. And just writing bits and pieces and working on bits and pieces that I had and sound files that Justin was sending across. and so. So this actually has set us up with some ideas for the next album. So it wasn't a, a disaster for us in that respect. It was a big shame because the 2020 was our 40th anniversary and we were going to do lots of anniversary gigs, which of course we couldn't do. But, um, but creatively speaking, it, it wasn't, it was actually quite good. Yes. So your tour that you've got coming up next month, God, it's very soon. I mean, um, is this the first one you've done this decade? 
you know, a, a sort no, of... we've done no, we did quite a few gigs last year as well. Right. And I can I I noticed there's there's all in Europe. There's have you got any plans on America or the UK or is it just going to focus on on sort of the continent? Well, the last gig we did was in London actually in November. We played at the Lexington and that was really cool actually. And London is always a good place for us. It's just the rest of the UK which is always going to be a gamble because we don't know if we actually have an audience in in Bristol or Manchester or Liverpool or Glasgow. Uh, maybe we have, and even if we have, we don't know how big it is, and there are no sort of British venues don't get the subvention and the and the financial help that other countries give the venues. So it's all about individuals basically trying to break even promoters. So it's 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 a bit of a risk for them and it's a risk for us. So it's difficult to um to to play anywhere else other than London, sadly. But we might try and play in Birmingham. Yes. We have a decent round there. But, um, so so after the tour, have you got more material that you're working on? I just wonder what your next project will be. Well we were thinking of we've Justin and I have another project called Brothers of the Trees, which is uh the core of it is just the two of us, but uh, we're open to other members of the band or other musicians joining us for, for concerts. And it's sort of semi-improvised uh, pieces that move into existing pieces of, of like trees songs, different versions with just guitar and vocal, or maybe the bassist or the clarinet player joins us if they're available. Uh, and we were going to do an album of Brothers of the Trees, but now we're thinking we're probably going to merge with the rest of the band and it's going to be another, it's going to be a different album because it was it started out as just the two of us, but um, uh, we're quite well advanced with this. It'd be great to record it this year, actually, if we can. Does the band also... We're, is that, we're working is on it, it now, really. Is this with Grant and Colin? Yeah. So they're the main and and Paul on drums. Exactly. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, keeping keeping these projects going and uh, rolling. But it does sound. I mean, you know, it's, you, you've got an amazing body of work, and I, I would imagine now that things have settled, or you know, the post COVID period, and you've got your catalogue up there, you must feel quite a, much more in control with your destiny. You know, as much as we can. Uh, I suppose so. Yeah, um, there's quite a lot happening. I've got other projects going on as well as uh, as um, as the Trees project. I've been asked to to join a project with a with a violinist in Belgium, a woman called Catherine Grandorge, who's asked me to play some has asked me to write some vocals and and lyrics for a project she's got, which is a live project working with a guy from 16 Horsepower as well. Um, uh, okay. So I've got this, this is going to be happening in Brussels in uh, April. So I'm quite busy trying to, and it's new for me to sort of be commissioned, kind of commissioned to work on a, on a project like this, just for a live show. Yes. And so that's quite uh, interesting. And I know, I remember 16 Horsepower when they first came out, there's kind of a, 
quite an Americana sound to them, haven't they? So yeah, they, but the, it's the bass player, and he's he's actually French. If I'm, I haven't, I never met him. I haven't met her either. Actually, it's all we're working with sound files, but it's uh, it's quite an interesting project. I, I I I didn't know her, but I looked up to see who she'd been working with recently, and I think the last person she was working with was Iggy Pop, which is quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find, I mean, do you find with your vocal, you know, just thinking of Iggy and the way his vo voice has changed and has got this incredible resonance to it, depth. I mean, does you, do you feel like your vo your, your singing and your style has changed much over the, the, the years? Uh, I think it changed at the end of the 90s or midway through the, the 90s. I, I discovered at that point, very late in the day, that I didn't need to. I didn't need to sing with passion, because my voice sounds like it's got passion, even when I'm singing, in a way without passion. So, I, I, I backed off a little bit on the on the emotional side of things, but um, no, I mean I'm not really a singer. Uh, I've never been trained as a singer. I'm a vocalist. And I can hear when I listen back, yeah, my voice has got deeper as I've got older and, 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 I, and I don't get quite so carried away with, uh, with, with my vocals anymore. But other than that, I think it, it, it's, it's remained quite steady. Yes, steady is good. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starting out, even if that person might have ignored it, is there any sort of words of wisdom or any like something that you'd nudge, even if, you know, even if you think, oh, they would have ignored it. I just wonder if there was any key sort of moments or messages or words of, you know, words of advice that you would sort of impart. I would say just be yourself and have... Trust yourself and have confidence in yourself. But then at the same time, I never really tried to be anybody else. But I mean, I think I veered away from it at times. And I, and I but I mean, it's not a very good answer. It's a good question. I'd have to think for a lot longer <laughs> to give you a better answer. No, it's good. Be yourself. You know, I mean, you. Is it is it something that you think when you see, especially you see that catalogue of, of work, are you kind of amazed that, you know, it's been 40 years, 40, 44 years nearly when the band started, that you're still you're still working on it as much as as much as you've ever worked on it? Yeah, um, it's amazing. Um, um, I'm really surprised. I, I, uh, I was talking to somebody recently and after I think it was after the London gig I said it was I love that gig and I it, I'm, I'm I'm massively into what I'm doing still aren't I supposed to be jaded by now <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with me I'm still hugely into it all the live stuff the lyric writing the the next recordings i'm i'm as enthusiastic as i ever was which seems weird to me and i, I i'm joking apart i start thinking is there something wrong with me 
but um, no, I'm happy doing it. And it's 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 um, as another friend when I explained this to another friend, he said it was what you're here for, Simon. And that's yes, and that's yes. When you look at the moon, stars, and the universe, you're probably thinking that's true, isn't it? <laughs> You know, it'd be it would be it'd be a shame to get to that age and think, oh God, I wish I, yes, I wish there was something more. But at least you have that kind of creative energy and and spirit that you feel like actually that's all right, you know. Which you yeah. can't quite imagine that when you're in your teens and twenties. But when you get older, you think, well, that is a, a life a, a life well lived. And um, you know, when you've still got another project that you're excited by, it it's just a fantastic thing. Indeed. You can't ask for more. You can, but you know, that's just <laughs> that's just greedy. But you know what I mean, though. You know, it's like yeah, I think because sure. a lot yeah. of bands that you know, again, I mentioned that a few times, but you know, they've done that music bit. They had that explosive moment, five years, you know, and it's a very boring narrative. You know, the get together, you know, twelve months, the single with John Peel, the session with John Peel, Dale Griffith, bad experience. First album quite good. Second album you know, the tensions of the band, third album, it's all over, you know, the transit van period. And and then there's this kind of wasteland, but often a lot of bands have like shuffled back a bit and said, I really just want to be creative again, but without the whole, you know, we're going to make it. It's like, I don't care about making it, but I'd love to play music again. I'd love to create something yeah. new again. And yeah. I just love to have that live experience and just enjoy it this time rather than feeling so annoyed or angry that we probably did in the 80s. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's something and it's brilliant. Like, you know, I know the film bit, you know, you're probably a bit unsure of, but it's amazing how many people have had films. Like the, there was the Chills from New Zealand, the go-betweens, the, even George Best album by w The Wedding Present, the Dolly Mixture, and then Rima Rima, which you'll find fascinating when if you ever see it. But um, the interesting thing with the Chills is that when Martin Phillips, I don't know if you know the band, when he heard the other members talking about their their experience, he was quite blown by the whole, like, oh right, okay, I didn't I didn't really ever think about what they were experiencing and what they were doing. So he found it quite sort of deep and um, interesting. So yeah, you'll have that experience. You'll just have to cringe, and um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be fine. Us fans love it. Just briefly though, just as before I say, how did you know you mentioned books and book. I mean, is that still available? Those books, or is that a different a different part of the you know operation? It's not. He sold out. He he self published it, and he made five hundred, and they all went. Um, and the apparent they all went quite quickly. He could have made more. And this 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 amazed Justin and I as well, because when he was doing it, and it took him years of work to compile it all and write it, and it's a thick book with. I can't even look at it myself. I, I kind of find it too freaky. All those pictures of me, it's just like, and all these track listings and people's memories of the gigs, I just think, actually, I can't handle this. It's It does something weird to my head. So I'm really glad he's done it. It's marvellous, but I've barely looked at it. I just think, no, great, but... No, not for me. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing to have for my kids, maybe all my grandchildren or whatever. But I can't quite get my head around it. And I've told the guy; he's a really nice German guy, and he's 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 you know he's seen us a hundred times now, and it's 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 mad that there are quite a few, 
quite a few. There are a handful of people that have actually seen us a hundred times. And I think that's incredible. Yes. I, know. It? I mean, can you imagine seeing a band a hundred times? No. I no, I mean, yes. I mean, the only person would be, you know, if I could have seen David Bowie throughout his whole, but a hundred yeah. times is quite a lot. You know, it'd be like you'd only want to see him on each of those tours or possibly two if you're feeling particularly greedy, but that'd be a lot, wouldn't it? I could, I would be worried that I would find it a bit boring or disappointing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've, I've asked them, you know, and they're all, they're not, they're not weirdos, these guys. They, they, they sound like they're going to be weirdos, but they're really not. They're sound guys. They're uh, and, and they just they've explained it. You know, they've said, you know, every time we've seen you, it's different. You're playing the same songs, but it's different. It's a different place, and you, there's such a energy coming from also the trees as a live band. And I think ultimately, we are a live band. We're better live. Well. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with all our albums, but I think we're a particularly good live band. And they, yeah, they just say we each time is is great. And of course, the other part of it is it's a it's it's an excuse to go to Milan or it's an excuse to go to Athens or whatever. And, and you visit the city and you go and see and all sorts of trees. So in this respect, I can kind of understand it, but it's um. Yes. Well, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, I'm really pleased. Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. And um, and if you want, I can always send you the link, but um, I'll put it up anyway and, you know, it'll be there. But thanks again and best of luck for the tour. I hope it goes really well and the next project. But um, yes, I'll be. Thanks a lot. That's, that's been brilliant. Well, look, thanks again and um, take yeah. care. N nice to meet you. Okay. See you later. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, just in case you um, were wondering. A massive thank you to Simon Jones from And Also The Trees for giving me that time. This has been the C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, it's true. Anyway, have a great week, stay safe.